You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible, will you turn to Philemon? Philemon. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. You will find Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You're welcome to take one now, or you can take one on your way out of worship today. And we hope you will begin reading that Bible and just see what happens in your life. We started uh, this short letter called Philemon last week, and we're going to finish it today. I want to read to get us started verses 8 to 19. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand here uh, every Sunday at Faith Church like this because we really do believe that this is God speaking to us. And so we stand out of reverence and readiness. We're eager to hear from him. So listen carefully to these words, beginning in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus... I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today is the final Sunday in this series preeminent, which has been a study of Colossians and Philemon. And we have something very special in store for you this morning as the conclusion of this series. The word preeminent comes from Colossians chapter 1, where Paul tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one, meaning Jesus surpasses all others. He is supreme. He is sufficient. Whatever you're facing in life, if you have Jesus, or more accurately, if Jesus has you, then you have all that you need. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Throughout this series, we have been learning about the Christ-centered life, which Paul sums up for us way back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, the Christ-centered life, it involves Christ-centered family, Christ-centered work, Christ-centered witness, and Christ-centered fellowship, which is where we hit the pause button last week. 
Last Sunday, we transitioned. We finished the letter of Colossians and we transitioned into Philemon. We've grouped these letters together in a single study and last week we learned why. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the wider Christian community located in an ancient city called Colossae. Philemon was written by the Apostle Paul to an individual named Philemon who was located, situated in that exact same city. So Colossians addresses the whole church. Philemon is the shorter, more personal letter written to a man within that Christian community, within that church. And Philemon teaches us all about Christ-centered fellowship. The letter centers around a conflict. Anybody ever gone through a conflict? Anybody going through one right now? Then this letter is relevant for you because it's all about conflict. Last week, we saw how Paul began to address that conflict in prayer. And we learned that this conflict is about two men, Philemon and Onesimus. Now, if you missed last week, I won't recap everything, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one. You can find it on our YouTube channel or on the Faith Church podcast, because last week I gave a lot of the specifics of that conflict and some details about the first century world in which that conflict erupted. But here are the basics you need to know to catch you up for today. The conflict is between these two men, Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon was a master. Onesimus was his slave. Now, when you hear the word slave, don't think slavery in the antebellum south. Slavery in antiquity was very different than the slavery that we knew in the United States. That's part one. That's the sermon from last week. Go listen to it later. Philemon was the master. Onesimus was the slave, and he was a runaway slave. It seems that Philemon's household, that Onesimus left Philemon's household, ran away, and as he did, he stole some money to finance his plan, to finance his escape. But interestingly enough, while Onesimus was on the run, he ran into the Apostle Paul. Imagine that. And through his encounter with Paul, Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus became a believer. He became a Christian. He was converted. And now, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon's house with this letter that we're studying, having done his best in the letter to ensure that reconciliation between these two men will take place. How does Paul do that? How does his argument work in the letter? Well, he began with a prayer last week. Now he'll transition from prayer to appeal. In the body of the letter, we're going to learn three things we'll first learn something about mediation, how Paul addresses the conflict between these two men, Philemon and Onesimus. Second, we'll learn something about transformation, how the gospel has changed Onesimus, and of course, how the gospel changes us. And third and finally, we'll learn something about reconfiguration, how the gospel has changed the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus and how the gospel reconfigures all relationships. So mediation, transformation, the gospel within Onesimus, and reconfiguration, the gospel between Philemon and Onesimus. That's our table of contents for the talk today. So here we go, point one, mediation. Just a few minutes on this point, but look at verses eight and nine. Paul writes, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. 
I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. Like I say, just a few minutes, but it's worth pointing out, it's worth camping out for just a moment here, because at some point, you likely will need to step in and mediate a conflict. In fact, you might be in that situation right now. Or maybe you're thinking about the conflict that probably will erupt around your Thanksgiving table as you meet with all of these family members that you haven't seen for a while, people who hold very different political and religious views and who knows what might happen in that setting, right? So you're about to be in a position where you're going to need to mediate a conflict. Or if not then, at some point you will, a conflict between friends, co-workers, who knows? So let's see what we can glean from the way Paul addresses this conflict. I want you to notice two things here. Notice, first of all, how he addresses the situation with a disarming gentleness. Now, if you have ever come to see me for counsel about how to deal with a conflict in your life, then you have no doubt heard me wield that phrase before, disarming gentleness, because I think it's at the top of the list of the qualities we need most when we enter into a conflict. And it's exactly what we see Paul wielding here. Paul was an apostle. He had apostolic authority. He could have commanded and controlled. He could have commanded Philemon to welcome Onesimus back. He could have controlled the situation, but he doesn't do that. Not here. Instead, he appeals from a place of love. Instead of commanding and controlling, he asks nicely. He asks nicely. See, Paul understands that this is a delicate situation, a situation that will require loving forgiveness. And so he models love for Philemon and Onesimus. He models this disarming gentleness. He doesn't come in with a sternness and a heavy-handedness, but it's amazing, really. Paul here is both gentle and firm. Now, how can you be both? Well, he's gentle in his disposition, but he's firm in his direction. He's gentle with the words that he chooses and the way he asks, but he's firm or resolute in the direction that he's leading Philemon and Onesimus toward reconciliation. So that's the first thing we learn. Disarming gentleness is much needed in conflict situations. The second thing I want you to see is how Paul refers to himself. I said this last week, in most of Paul's letters, he refers to himself as an apostle. Only in Philemon does he use this self-description prisoner. Paul says, I am an old man and I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. As an old man, he's writing as a spiritual father to a son, a son he loves, a son he wants to see the best thing happen in his life. He writes as a spiritual father and as a prisoner. By emphasizing the fact that he's a prisoner, Paul is drawing attention to the sacrifices he himself has made for the sake of the gospel because he's about to call Philemon to make certain sacrifices. For this conflict to come to an end, for reconciliation to happen, both Philemon and Onesimus will need to have humility. Others-oriented thinking 
And so that's what Paul models here. I'm a humble prisoner. I know what it's like to make sacrifices. And so I'm going to ask you to follow me in making sacrifices. This is what we can learn from the way he enters into this situation to mediate this conflict. That's the first thing we can learn. But secondly, I want you to learn something here about transformation, how the gospel has transformed Onesimus, the runaway slave. Picking up in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now remember the backstory. Remember what has happened. The runaway slave ran into Paul. Imagine that. Paul shares the gospel with him. Paul is always looking for opportunities to share the gospel with people, isn't he? He shares the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, all in our place for our sins. And when Onesimus heard that, he accepted the good news. He believed the gospel. He responded with faith. Have you done that? You're hearing the gospel now. Maybe you've heard it your whole life. Have you responded to it the way that Onesimus did? It was a life-changing thing for him. It changed everything about him. We know that because of what Paul says here. He refers to Onesimus as his child. In other words, this is a, a spiritual son. Onesimus is now a spiritual son. And when Paul says that, he emphasizes a couple of important facts. First of all, Onesimus is now part of a new family. And in this new family, he has a fresh start. It's a new beginning for him. Maybe you're in a place where you need a new beginning. You need a fresh start. The gospel offers that exact thing for you. Forgiveness of sin, a fresh start, a new life, a whole new life. Look at what happened in Onesimus' life. Paul says, formerly, Onesimus was useless. Now here, he, he plays on Onesimus' name. The name Onesimus literally means useful. It was a name that was commonly given to slaves with the hope, of course, that they would live up to the name. But apparently, before he met Paul, before he met Jesus, before he was converted, Onesimus was not very useful at all. He didn't have a good work ethic. He didn't have a good reputation. But now he's been converted and everything is different. He has a new character, a new work ethic, a new purpose in life. He's even started serving alongside the Apostle Paul in gospel ministry. He's become so useful for Paul that it's tough for Paul to send Onesimus back to Philemon's household. But send him back, he does. And he says this in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, Philemon. Here's the reason for it, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Now here, Paul draws attention to the providence of God. How this strange situation has somehow worked out for the good. How Onesimus could make a wrong choice. He ran away, he stole money, 
clearly a wrong choice, but how somehow God can take that wrong choice and lead Onesimus to the right place? How somehow God can make a bad situation bow to him, using it for the good? See, if it's true that God is always working for the good for those who love him, if that's true, then it's also true that at times we get to see a glimpse of that. We get to see it happening. And we get a glimpse of it right here with what happened between Onesimus and Philemon. This conflict between master and slave, it actually led to Onesimus' conversion, a changed life and a changed relationship between that master and that slave, which leads us into the third and the main point of this entire letter, reconfiguration. We've seen how the gospel was at work within Onesimus. Paul ends with how the gospel is now between Philemon and Onesimus, reconfiguring their relationship. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. Notice what Paul does here. There are two parts to his appeal. This is really the climax of the letter. Everything he has been working towards since pen first hit paper, it all leads us to this point. This is the appeal for reconciliation. And what Paul does in these two moves he makes is he applies the gospel to the conflict, but not simply by telling us about it, but by showing it. Paul ends the conflict by embodying the gospel. He knows that for Philemon and Onesimus to be reunited, to have a new relationship, they need to understand Jesus and all that Jesus has done. But he doesn't just tell them that, he shows them. Paul steps into the gap that existed between these two men in order to show them how Jesus steps into the gap for us. Look at the two moves. The first one is the welcome, verse 17. If you consider me your partner, that word is related to the word koinonia that we saw last week in verse six, the fellowship of faith. Paul says, Philemon, if you consider me to be in fellowship with you, then you should receive Onesimus just as you would receive me. If you are in fellowship with me, you are in fellowship with him. Treat him as such. But how can this be? Because remember, there's a debt that hasn't been paid. Philemon wasn't, right? Onesimus wasn't just a, a runaway slave. He was a thief. He stole money from his master on the way out the door. Onesimus has a debt that he can't pay. So now look at the second move Paul makes. Not just the welcome, but the debt paid. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Charge it to me, Paul says. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. When Paul talks about his own hand, he's using the image of an IOU. He's saying, Onesimus' IOU, I will take personal responsibility for it. I will pay it. 
Now, if you've been here for this whole series, you'll remember this isn't the first time we've seen IOU language. Do you remember way back in Colossians 2 what Paul said to us believers there? Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, the IOU, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Colossians 2, the IOU, that record of indebtedness, is a record that we have given to God saying, God, I owe you everything. I owe you perfect obedience, total allegiance, because God is our creator. So we owe him everything. And the record of our sins is conclusive evidence that we have not given God perfect obedience. We've not given him our total allegiance. But God in his grace has canceled the record of our debt. How? By nailing it to the cross, the one who went to the cross for us, Jesus Christ, he did live a perfect life. He did everything we should have done. And there on the cross, he took the punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, and so we can have forgiveness of all our trespasses. Friends, not some of your trespasses, not everything but that one thing you did long ago that you hope and pray nobody ever finds out about. No, forgiveness of all your trespasses, all your sins because of Christ. This is the gospel. Now back to Philemon. Paul steps into the gap that existed between Philemon and Onesimus. He pays this debt as a way of pointing them to the one Jesus who paid the ultimate debt. He applies the gospel to the conflict. He shows them the very thing that Jesus has done for all of us. He shows us that the same forgiveness we find in Jesus is the forgiveness we must show to others. And this is the way that the conflict between master and slave, now brother and brother, can come to an end. They need a deeper understanding and an application of the gospel itself. See, the message of Philemon is this. The gospel is powerful enough not just to create a new you, but a unity, a family, a loving and forgiving, deep and abiding fellowship. The gospel brings people together like no other power in the world, fellowship. I want to close with a couple of points of application and then we have something special in store for you. I imagine that some of you in hearing this are thinking, but I don't feel that deep and abiding fellowship. I'm not sensing that. And then others of you, I imagine, are thinking something like, I'm not sure I need that. I don't see my need for fellowship. I'm doing just fine. I want to speak to both of those groups briefly in closing. First, for those of you who don't feel this fellowship, it might be, it might be because of your limited interaction. See, if all you do is come to worship two or three times a year, 
I'm not sure you'll ever feel, experience this fellowship. It's like when you see those family members around the Thanksgiving table that you haven't seen for a year or so, and there's always that awkwardness to the interaction, right? You feel like you have to start the relationship all over from scratch. If all you do is attend worship a couple of times a year, I think there will always be that awkwardness of interaction, that incompleteness to your sense of fellowship. But I'll go a step further. I think that incompleteness to your fellowship will be there even if you attend worship two or three times a month. If you merely attend worship, that is. The New Testament is teeming with these one another passages, texts that teach us about our mutual responsibilities that we have within this Christ-centered fellowship. But you know what's interesting? It's very difficult to fulfill those one another passages if all you do is come to worship. We're called to do things like comfort one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, confess our sins to one another. If you just come and sit in these seats for an hour, hour and 15 on Sundays and leave, I don't think you're doing any of those things. Maybe if you don't feel this fellowship, if you're not experiencing it, maybe it's because of your limited interaction. Are you involved in a connection group? Are you committed to that group? To living life with a smaller group of brothers and sisters in Christ? That's where you'll find that experience of fellowship. Some of us don't feel this sense of fellowship. Others of us perhaps are thinking, I don't really need it. I'm not sure I see my need for this fellowship. If that's you, embrace yourself for impact. You're naive. I hate to be the one to tell you. You're naive. You haven't lived enough life yet. Because you see, you might be able to rejoice in the good times alone, but you will not be able to rejoice in your suffering alone. And suffering will come. Thinking back to what we learned way back in Colossians 1, afflictions will arise because that's life in a sin-sick world. And when those afflictions arise, you will not be ready to suffer well without the community of Christ. It is only when you are embedded in Christ-centered community that you will be ready to rise to the challenge, to suffer well, to suffer in such a way that you point others to Jesus, the preeminent one. As the finale of this preeminent series, I want to tell you about someone, one of our very own gospel partners here at Faith Church. This is a woman who knows suffering and who shows us how to suffer well. According to her doctors, this woman has only months to live. Likely, this will be her last Christmas. Right here in our midst, she is dying. And as we watch her die, she is teaching us how to live the Christ-centered life, what this series has been all about. 
Faith Church, for those of you who don't know her, I want to introduce you to my sister in Christ, my good friend, my constant encourager, Pam Greer. My name's Pam Greer. I'm 69 years old. I'm married, been married almost 52 years now to a wonderful man named Brad Greer. I grew up in a family with three sisters. I'm the youngest. We had a, a dis, extremely dysfunctional family, but I was grateful by the grace of God. It drove me to him, not away from me. I accepted the Lord as my savior. Actually, he called me when I was six years old, and I had a realistic grasp of I was a sinner and I needed salvation. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist. I had a very vital church community when I was growing up. I had great youth leaders. Brad and I were in a singing group together of 50 kids. We would practice nine months out of the year and go on tour. And then as Brad and I got older, we started studying Reformed doctrine and theology, and it has been the solid bedrock foundation of our faith. And I taught our children and our grandchildren, I, when they were being raised, I would say, why were you created? First question in the catechism, Westminster. And they would say, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I said, good. That's what you need to know in life. I can remember riding on the tractor, singing worship songs. I've always loved my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Hymns have always played a very important part in my life, um, whether there were good times or there were rough times. And I've had so many good times. I've had, oh my gosh, I've been such a blessed woman that, again, you know, whether we had enough money to pay the bills or we didn't, you worship God through it. And um, whether the kids had good health or not, or as teenagers they were running wild or not, <laughs> um, God has always been faithful. You can always, I can always trust Him. He's been faithful. I had um, cancer before. And I had been told if I lived one year, I'd live two. If I lived two, by the time I got to my fourth year, it would explode. And almost four years to the day, it did. On April 12th, I think it was, of this last year, I wasn't feeling well, and I went to my oncologist, and, um, and they said that I was terminally ill um, and that I could live anywhere from 12 to 15 months, depending on how quickly the blood cancer that I have, which isn't leukemia, um, would turn into acute myeloma leukemia. And once it does, I will probably have about five months, six months at the most left. Again, God's always been faithful. It doesn't mean that 
don't cry. Um, when I found out, one of the first things that I thought about was I would never get to see one of my great-grandchildren born. Um, I, I can't travel anymore, so I can't go to St. Louis to be around my grandchildren. I love my family so deeply. You know what gets me through horrific, painful times is we put worship music on at night and um, Brad holds me in his arms and he comforts me. He reminds me of all the goodness of God and we lay there and we pray together and we sing hymns together. My question throughout this whole thing is, God, how do I glorify you and enjoy you forever? I've never been terminally ill before. I don't know how to do this. I need your help. And he has been faithful to me in and out, up and down. I can't find any place to grumble or not be grateful because I have a phenomenal savior. I serve the one true living God who knows my yesterdays and my tomorrows. I have a phenomenal husband and family. And again, you know, I'm gonna say, Faith Community Church has been the best church we've ever been to. The truth of God's word is preached, which is gonna be that bedrock foundation that we all need, whether we go through hard times or good times. Um, whether, like Brad and I, we failed as parents and we learned how to not only forgive ourselves uh, to receive the forgiveness of God, but to forgive ourselves. And I see that in body life at Faith Community. I just thank you for letting me be a part of your family. I would encourage anybody who's going through a difficult time that um, religious pet answers just don't cut it. But being in a community of believers that will hold you accountable, that will love you no matter what you do or for a living or social status or anything else, I just want to encourage you that death isn't the end of life. Um, life goes on. God is always faithful. And He wouldn't tell us that we were created in His image. And we were created to glorify Him and enjoy Him if He didn't make a way for us to do it. And He always makes a way for us. He's the way maker.